So um, this is City World's Radio, City World Radio Intelligent Talk, and I'm here with my mother, Jeanette Watson-Sanger, who just wrote a new book called It's My Party, and I'm very grateful to have her here. And Mom, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for inviting me. So I just want to just, in a brief overview of the book, um, you discussed your journey from recognizing and dealing with serious depression and overcoming it. And you first became aware of this, you talk about, as a child. Do you think you were born with a propensity for depression? Well, I think uh, there were several factors at work. I think that part of depression is hereditary, but I think it also could be circumstances as well. And um, in the household that I grew up in, even though you know the parents spent a lot of time with us and did a lot of wonderful things with us, I you know, there were so many of us that they couldn't really be aware of how all of us were feeling. And um, when, from seventh to ninth grade were very difficult years for me. Um, And I didn't realize how difficult until I started writing my memoir. And then I started writing about how every night when I went to bed, I tried to strangle myself. And I thought, hmm, that isn't normal for every 12-year-old girl to get in bed. And you went out to an air conditioning, too? You sat out? Oh, and then I sat outside to try to get pneumonia because strangling hurt too much. Right. But then, (laughs) you know, I didn't really think of that for many years until I started putting all this down. Well, and and one of the ways, um, you had a number of ways to come out of it. And one of it was seeing psychiatrists and shock therapy you mentioned, too. Do you think... The, the psychiatry was helpful to you? Oh, I think the psych, I think, um, yes, I think I was in um, psychoanalysis, so it was very serious. Five days a week, an hour on the, on the couch each time where the man, my wonderful psychiatrist, Lester Friedman, would occasionally say something. But I started to underself, understand myself, and just by repeating all these relationships that I was having to him, I began to realize it wasn't such a great way to go and such a great relationship. And then it was very helpful when I met wonderful Alex because my My first- My stepfather, Alex Singer. Yes, because my first thought was, oh, I'll I'll give him away. Uh, He's, you know, my friend Allison would love him and my my, um, analyst made this sputtering sound behind me so horrified and then I thought oh why should I give him away you know he's so nice why were you going to give him away because probably because he was too nice and I wasn't used to someone who was so nice okay so and I thought you know she didn't have anyone (laughs) so nice to give her wonderful man well that was a very nice thought of you yeah it was was stupid it was glad you didn't I guess I guess I'm extremely glad I didn't well, um, obviously, I'm familiar with our family because having been um, the grandson, but um, depression sometimes runs in the family, as you know. And um, your father, my grandfather, was a very high-achieving person. He was head of IBM. Fortune magazine called him the most successful capitalist in history in a late 1980s cover story. He obviously had problems. His problems were anger and depression and other things. Do you think that his depression issues were due to low self-esteem? Was it something that he was born with? Do you have any reading on that from your psychiatry? I think um, he must have been dyslexic because he was so smart, yet he stayed back two grades at school. He um, when Was he this went, the school? Oh, yeah, or maybe even before okay. the day, day school, but before college he stayed back two grades. And then once he was in college, he failed American history twice. 
And the teacher would say, I'd like to welcome all the class, and hello again, Mr. Watson. So, um, This is at Brown, Our course, where I went. That, that, yeah, that was at Brown. So, um, but his father, so I think growing up slightly dyslexic, his father also had a terrible temper, which I was never aware of because he was wonderful to me, and I adored my grandfather and spent wonderful weekends in New York with him. My grandmother was there too, but I can't remember a thing about her. All I remember is being with my grandfather, going to the park with him, taking carriage rides with him, and going to a toy store with him. We'll say, you know, the best words for a child, you can have anything you want. That's a a wonderful story. And he called me Precious Promise, which was really sweet. I remember um, when I was doing my thesis at Brown on his father, I remember him saying to me, well, I did most of it. And I was amazed that he would care about my nothing little thesis in the midst of all of his success and being on the cover of Fortune magazine and Time magazine and and all of this. So I guess some of it was just illogical and irrational to have these feelings of insecurity when he was so lauded by so much of the world. Well, I think his father used to fight with him every month until they died. I mean, he said in his memoir that have hellacious fights. And who knows what grandfather would say to him, but it wasn't building up his self-confidence. So you think that maybe his father was responsible for it? Like, I think it's a whole collection of things. You know, who knows back in grandfather's parents, you know, whether they had this thread of depression running through the family and anger. I mean, grandfather was certainly angry. I mean, these fights they used to have. Daddy said, you know, he said one time to his father, old man, just leave me alone. And he left. He went home. He took my mother out dancing at, at St. Regis. And then he got home. And my grand, it was about three in the morning, and my grandparents were sitting there. All, and grandfather was sitting hunched up like a little old man, waiting and then begging daddy to come back. So, of course, he said yes. Wasn't there someone else, too, who was um, a problem? It was above Skipper, and your father, grandfather said, I'll oh, take yeah, care of that. Was a, yeah, that was a really uh, amazing story. Yeah, Daddy had um, someone above him at IBM that he just couldn't stand. <laughs> and then uh, Grandfather said, don't worry, I'll take care of it for you. Well, it sounds a little sinister, <laughs> because in the boat on the way to Europe, the man died. <laughs> and now, of course, um, you mentioned in the book as well that— um, I'm not implying that anything happened. It was just amusing. Just amusing, yes. Yes. Now, you mentioned in the book that um, your grandfather's home in upstate New York was not the actual home listed on the plaque because he wanted a more grand yes. from, from what was a really very humble background with no yes, college. And that's right. That's right. Yeah, now at the, the homestead is, is given out to religious groups. They can rent it. And I, I was— went out to to visit the house. Um, My husband, Alex, went to find his grandmother, Margaret Sanger's house, which wasn't that far from where my grandfather lived in Painted Post, New York. So it was very touching to go there. I saw lots of pictures of my grandfather I'd never seen before and met these ladies even older than I was who remembered grandfather. And then I saw the house, which was quite a nice house. And and grandfather's house wasn't that nice. He was a bit of an actor, I guess, in a way, to do that with, 
your father? Does it appear like this crumpled old man to get him to come back to oh, IBM? Yes. And also, he knew how to make an appearance. Like he had one very nice suit, and that was it. And when he went to get it cleaned, he'd have to wrap himself in newspaper. And when he went, when he had was fired at forty and came to New York, he hired a limousine to take him to all his job interviews. What's so interesting about that is, as you refer to the pre. Because uh, IBM was called Computer Tabulating and Recording Company, CTRC. And prior to 1914, he was working at NCR, th- the cash. And a wonderful man named John Patterson, who did fire your grandfather, but he was very humane with the workers. Glass windows, umbrellas if it rained. And I think a lot of the management techniques that your grandfather learned yes. were from John Patterson. But um, but yes, he had, he had one suit, and uh, he had he was an organ. He was selling organs and things. Yes, and, he was. And one of them was stolen, right? Well, and, uh, he drank. He tied up his buggy with all the organs and went inside to a bar. And then he had too much to drink, and by the time he got out, the you know everything was stolen. So. He, and he had one other incident where he was on a, um, on a boat, and he, I guess he gambled and lost all his money, and then he, he never drank again. Interesting. So yeah. by the time he was at IBM, and they sort of had the no-drinking policy at IBM, that was from his own personal experience. Yes, and my mother used to say the dinner parties were so deadly because they would serve one, maybe one little glass of wine before dinner and then nothing during the dinner. So he was sort of famous for that entertaining. I assume he was a very straight-laced person who probably didn't didn't curse and was very formal. Yeah, I know. And he was sort of all self-taught, really, because he had no education and no real background upstate. Yeah, but he was interested in a lot of different things. And, you know, he was one of the big donors to the Metropolitan Museum. His name is on a plaque there with Rockefeller. The Watson Library. Well, even before that. Okay. And then um, he was a member of this club in arts club in New York and at one point he was the head of it and, and it was all sorts of interesting artists like Salmagunda Club was that yeah the Salmagundi Club that's right so so he was he was very big there so he had a lot of interests and of course obviously your father had tremendous interests I mean he uh, he became a jet pilot and helicopter pilot in his 60s he then when he left IBM after his heart attack in 71 he took his boat all over the South Pacific he retraced Captain Cook's voyages yes. he took his boat the furthest up the coast of Greenland of any non-military boat do you think a lot of that came from his father those interests and I think those were beyond his father because even though his father had a boat, he didn't know how to sail. So I think that was part of Skipper's making a mark for himself by becoming such a great sailor and then becoming, you know, a pilot because my grandfather couldn't do those things. So that was kind of his separate thing, I think. But he was interested in Madame de Stahl, fascinating woman around the time of the French Revolution whose father was the... Uh, financier to Louis the Sixteenth, and very famous. So he had odd interests, lots of different things. Lots of different interests, and he also had a desire to constantly push himself. I mean, like um, he would take the helicopter up, and when it was very cloudy days, and he shouldn't have taken it up, he would take the stunt plane up to the maximum he could. He could do it. He would take the boat furthest into the ice and. Do you think that also came from maybe a feelings of insecurity that he had to try to live up to his father? I don't know. I don't know. But he, um, you know, he climbed the Matterhorn when he was 65. That's right. Which is really amazing. Uh, he, wh- when I w- 
when I was with him, he liked things, the coldest, the hardest. I mean, everything I didn't like, you know, cold, icy, <laughs> windy, dangerous. You know, he loved. I mean, we were in a hurricane together coming home from Bermuda. This is in the boat, the yeah, sailboat, yes. in the sailboat. And we were out of radio communication for 24 hours. And, um, you know, he was enjoying it. Old man against the sea, his hair was blowing wildly all around him. And he, uh, you know, when I had to stay below with my friend, but I, I was worried about my brother that he might get swept off. They were all wearing harnesses to clipped on to the rails. But it was scary. But D- Daddy loved it. When, when IBM was doing the System 360, which was that huge, largest bet, I believe, in the history of the world of a non-governmental body up in that time, $5 billion bet the company, almost sinks the company. His own brother, Arthur, I think is eventually taken off that, which was very hard for your father, and they difficult in their relationship. Did you see him during that time period? There was a lot of stress in the 60s. And Well, um, right about that time, my father and I and my youngest sister went on a picnic together, and oh, Daddy, right in Maine. yeah, okay. and Daddy uh, sailed us from Camden to a little island, very tiny one, and he built a fire and made hamburgers for us. And then in the middle of lunch, he got up and I had heard something, but I didn't know what it was. And so we looked all over the island, and no one was there. And Skipper was very agitated. And then sailing home, he said, uh, Jen, did you hear a voice? And I said, yes, I did. But I couldn't hear what the voice said. And he said, the voice was saying, are you all right, Tommy? He said, the only person who ever called me Tommy was my father. And I'm going through a lot right now at IBM. It's very stressful. Now, he later, as you told me this story, Mom, he later denied uh, hearing that voice and later on said to you, like 25 years later, remember hearing that voice and said, uh, fathers don't like to admit they hear strange voices to their daughter. Yes, that's right. Which was a fascinating uh, thing that he would later bring it up to you shortly before he died, that he did hear that voice and heard his father. And it's just an an amazing, his father was such a powerful influence on him, the way he wanted to run the company, behave and act. It's um, something. I want to just turn... um, briefly to your mother, obviously, because that's a big influence on you, and you write about her a lot in the book. Um, your mother, Olive Cawley Watson, who um, had a fascinating um, life. She was a, a sort of a minor movie star in Hollywood in the 30s. She was ranked one of the 10 most beautiful women in the world by Vogue magazine. She, of course, dated Jack Kennedy, according to the book Reckless Youth by Nigel Hamilton. It's in your book. She was Kennedy's first girlfriend at Choate, and she dated Howard Hughes. And um, you, when you were doing your book, you found people that, that knew them, right? A cousin of yours had seen her with... Um, oh, my mother's cousin, Herman, was a great source because I, I knew one woman from the hairdresser who was also mommy's cousin. She said, you have to call cousin Herman. So Herman, t- total delight. We had a wonderful time together. And he told me all the stories about mommy because she used to spend every summer with his family in Long Island. And she slept with her grandmother, Field, who she loved. And he would describe um, she, when— She would stay with your, your grandmother. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and then she would go out on her dates. And Howard Hughes flew in in his seaplane, and he'd get out with his hat and his suit, totally impeccably dressed. And then Jack Kennedy would come. But um, Cousin Herman's parents didn't like him because they said he was a wise gazebo, whatever that is. But they thought he wasn't properly dressed to be taking. He was kind of slovenly. 
I, well, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> he was known for a little bit like that, dressing in sort of a yeah. sort of dis. Okay, please continue about your cousin. Um, and what else did he tell me? He said, Mommy used to taught him how to tie his shoes. They all used to go sailing together. Um, his brother wa- was once sitting under my mother's window in Grandmother Fields. This is your cousin's brother? Cousin uh, Herman's yeah, brother? Yeah, cousin okay. Herman's brother. And so my grandma, he was kissing some girl, and Grandmother Field didn't like the girl, so she poured water over their heads. <laughs> <laughs> and Grandmother Field was evidently very interesting, because if my mother wasn't there, Howard Hughes liked to talk to her, because she knew a lot about current events, and she listened to the radio and read all the newspapers. Interesting. You're, you're painting a it's interesting view of Howard Hughes in your book that's not as well known, because they sort of see him as sort of a somewhat eccentric slash crazy person who had all these problems, but he could be quite charming and talk yeah, to. Yeah, and handsome. And handsome, and, and I guess you're, you're uh, did, did your mother talk to you about these people? Did she talk to you about Jack Kennedy or Howard Hughes much? Well, she, d- she did, but I, I don't have too many specific stories. She did say when she would visit the Kennedys that they all would talk on serious topics, and the father would make sure that they talked about something political oh, or historical. Right. At dinner conversations, dinner, right? It was important. Yeah, they all had to. And so my, my family decided to institute that, and we were supposed to take subjects, um, but nobody did. <laughs> and so that sort of went out the window after two <laughs> very silent meals. So she liked Joe Kennedy and found him. Well, she saw, used to see Joe Kennedy out with Gloria Swanson when Jack would take her to nightclubs. You know, Joe would be there with his girlfriend. It's kind of funny because Jackie Kennedy also was very close to Joe Kennedy, and uh, yes, he gave her money to buy clothes. That's right, and he would he would substitute her allowance for, because Jack was quite uh, stingy as as uh, as she was. She of course spent a lot, but um, yes, that's interesting. And of course, the Kennedys came to Maine. I mean, you got to know uh, Bobby Kennedy came when you were there, and Ted Kennedy came up a number of times, right? Yes, that's right. And Bobby would always arrive with a huge entourage. And my mother never knew how many people would arrive. So Rosie Greer came one time. The football player. The football player. Um, Andy um, Williams would come, and he was a wonderful singer. And he sang, they'd done a whole musical of Dr. Doolittle. And so he sang us the songs to that. And um, John Glenn. And my, my sister tried to teach him to drive the, the one of the old cars, and she said she must have been a bad driver because he drove into a tree. Yes, had <laughs> <laughs> he just done the circumnavigated the earth and circled yes. the earth and could drive a tree. And you know, um, he had a famous expression, Bob Kennedy, that the measure of a man is how you treat those who can't fight back. That's what he said. But according to the staff in Maine and what you had said, he wasn't particularly nice. He didn't. Well, I really think they more disliked Ethel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yes, because Ethel would tell her children to come in the kitchen and get stuff for her. And um, just the inconsideration of t- not telling your hostess how many people you're going to have. You write in the book as a um, skipper, my grandfather, your father had kind of a eccentric World War II German captain, Paul Walter. Oh, yeah. And no one was exactly sure what he had done in the war, but uh, would he been a U-boat commander? or a t- And uh, he gets into a fight with Bobby Kennedy because Bobby Kennedy wants to bring his dog on the boat. And at one point, didn't Paul throw the dog off? And yeah, Yes, um, and, and, and um, Paul said, no, you're not getting in my boat. He considered Skipper's boat his boat. And then Bobby said, yes, I am, and got on. And then Paul picked up the dog freckles and threw them in the water. So <laughs> some kind person took 
And then Bobby had to dive in after and rescue Freckles. And then Freckles went over on the ferry with some kind person. That's interesting. And, and of course, one time, I believe, um, you contacted Teddy Kennedy about a bill when you were working yes. in your book. And, yes. And for it was for SRO hotels. Working, I was working with older people, and he was very nice. He listened to me. Um, he said he would take it into consideration. I was amazed I could even get through to him, but he was he was very nice. And I had a brief contact with him, and I asked him for something on a Kennedy project I was doing in Texas. He was very nice to me as well, and he wrote me a letter which I cherish to this day. So, um, And also you write in the book about the king of Thailand coming to Maine, uh, yes. which was interesting. And um, he, uh, Johnson asked Skipper to have him there because we were trying to get basing rights in Vietnam and Thailand. And he was left alone pretty much in the house. And you found a bunch of pictures. Um, you found pictures of well, your mother, of course, with Jack Kennedy. You found these pictures of the king of Thailand. How did you research that? Um, well, my mother um, was researched. I have a, a good friend named Carrie Cameron, whose mother was a model with my mother. And Skipper burned all my mother's scrapbooks. Why did he do that? I think maybe he was jealous. That's why she never told me about her past until I oh, was 13. Really? So He was very, very uh, dependent upon her, yes. shall we say. Yeah, Okay. he was. And so um, she, she burned everything, and she had very few pictures, but Carrie had everything. So Carrie copied every picture every magazine cover every everything and gave it to me so I have lots now of information and I put some of them in the book so it was great to have that material and I also googled my mother and I came up with this uh, interview magazine interview that was done with her and they said you know what would you, what kind of a husband are you looking for and she said I don't want someone who's going to bow down to me and do whatever I want. I want a caveman. A caveman. <laughs> and I said that was so perfect because that's what she got. You got a tough, a tough guy as a husband, yes. Um, and you, you mentioned um, what's interesting. It's for the for the Thai listeners or people in Asia. It was King Boomable who just died. Yeah. And his son, as you recount in the book, he slipped. Um, was it going into his boat? And oh, he was saying he could swim. Jimmy was saying, "Don't jump in. It's freezing water." Well, of course, he jumped right in, and he practically drowned and Jimmy had to pull him out by the scruff of his neck. This is Jimmy water. Brown who works who still works on the property. Yes. And yes. so the whole history of Thailand could be different because he's now the king today. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it was an interesting uh, interesting thing that that happened and um, researching those uh, things. Well, I just want to now um, talk about you. you. So you, um, you marry obviously my father, you get divorced, you come to, um, you were living in California, then you were living in Michigan, and then you moved back to New York, Yes, obviously. And you, of course, were very happy to come back to New oh, York. Oh, so happy. My friends were all here. There was so much to do. It's so electric. And once I got divorced, I just felt just exuberant that there was the whole city was opened up to me. And I, I felt totally safe. I used to walk around the city late at night by myself, never a worry that anything would happen to me. Just exalted in being back in the city. Now, this is a pre-Giuliani city. Things are much more affordable. There are more artists and writers in the city. In some ways, it's a more interesting uh, place, I would say. And then you, you decide um, in the late 70s, in 78, starting in 77, you open the bookstore, yes. which arguably became the most famous bookstore in the city. Well, Books. darling, I love your description. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Books and Co. Um, and who was it? How did you get the idea to open the bookstore? Well, I... Um, 
was I found out that I would have to have an operation, major operation on my hip, and it would be a whole year to recover from it first on um, a walker, then crutches, then a cane, and lots of physical therapy. And I was very daunted by this and, and somewhat depressed. And then I went to sleep and I had a dream that I was in a wonderful bookstore surrounded by books and it looked just like Books and Company did. I mean, it was old-fashioned and wonderful, cozy place nice to go. Nice couch for people to sit. Yeah, it was nice, like a Parisian lounge almost. People. Yeah, a nice couch for people to sit on. So um, that was really it. It was it was a dream that then became a reality. When did you start um, having the writer's series where people would read once Well, a you week? know, we opened with that. That oh. was part of the mission was to have the readings. We had... Um, forums, we had marathons, we had gallery openings, we had um, lots and lots of different things. The list of people associated who with the, with the uh, bookstore is just amazing. It's Walker Percy, Octavio Paz, Carlos Fuentes, Joseph Heller, Allen Ginsberg, Fran Liebowitz, of course, you're still friends with, Susan Sontag. I mean, it was a magnet, a real literary magnet in the 70s and 80s. Well, it was wonderful because I met so many interesting people. And the, the first customer, I believe, was Jackie Kennedy's sister, right? Yes, there. Lee Radziwill. Yes, she came in, and I, I was so excited because I was going to make my first sale. And then I forgot to charge her sales tax. So. <laughs> and obviously, when things first started, you didn't have a great partner, Bert Britton, um, when you first started the store. Well, it, things didn't work out with Bert. He was very brilliant in a lot of ways, and I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about authors I didn't know about. I learned, you know, it was his idea to have the famous wall where we'd have the complete works of, of an author rather than just the current book. So he, he was great, but things didn't work out, and we went our separate ways. Who's a big help in promoting the store? Oh, and starting. it was unbelievable. The store was written up everywhere, did all Bert because just, of him. Did he just know tons of people? How did he know so many people? He Bert? knew all the writers because he'd been working at the Strand Bookstore. And so the writers would come in and sell all of these books to him. And so he knew everybody. And so they all were happy about the bookstore. So we're just going to take a quick break, and we'll resume soon.
Okay, so we're back, and um, so we were talking to Mom about the um, the bookstore, and of course your um, lecture series. They were once a week for these authors. Sometimes twice a week. Sometimes twice a week. We, and we'd have Sunday salon sometimes, what and I'd that? bring in uh, wonderful muffins from home, and we'd give coffee. We did an Edith Wharton salon. A number of different people talking about Edith Wharton. Uh, we did it with other authors. Um, so there was always something different. And it was nice because it wasn't like the planetarium where I sometimes had to be careful. I could do really whatever I wanted. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mention that. But you worked at the New York City um, Hayden Planetarium doing fundraising yes. in the 70s. Yeah. What, and I just want to, now that you mentioned that, what was interesting about that, didn't Jackie Kennedy lend her name to? Yes. It was, she loved, the, her son loved the planetarium. So she, John John. Yes. So the I went to my school, St. David's. Yes. So the first uh, charity that she put her name on was was the planetarium, which was great because we were, you know, people wondered if she would come. All the parapazzi showed up, so we got lots and lots of publicity. And I remember um, people like Salvador Dali, for example, came to those parties. He actually yes. came back to the house that we yes, had in, in the seventies, right. and right. that was all because I guess Jackie and lending her name. I don't know how Je Salvador Dali got there. I mean, we had a lot of <laughs> interesting characters. Salvador Dali was he kind of a unique person in speaking with him? You know, know, I have only seen Salvador Dali for years. I mean, I used to go to visit a friend, and now I'm trying to think which hotel it was. Saint Regis. Saint Regis. That's where he and he always sat in the lobby with his cheetah or whatever kind of an animal. So I remember him sitting there with his curled mustaches and his exotic animal but I, I never spent much time talking to him another person you got to know a little bit was Andy Warhol because um, he would come into the store as and, and as your first book you talked Woody Allen wrote the introduction to the to the book on the bookstore from 20 years ago he used to come in every weekend didn't he he did but he didn't like to really be talked to so we would just be very careful to give him his privacy so you didn't interact with him at all and, and no it just um you know, a little bit at the cash register, but you know, it didn't. He he really wanted to be in there, on his own and not talking to us. Another interesting person who I met through you too um, was Romero Bearden, the wonderful yes, uh, black yes. artist. And he there was a Jewish dentist he would meet right every weekend. And they would yes, they would become yes, friends. Yes, he came in. He and this other man named Jack Fine who collected his. Um, yeah, there was Jack Fine. Yeah, Romero. Al Murray, another wonderful writer, and they all would hang out there on Saturday mornings. And I loved Romare, who was probably the nicest of any of the artists or writers that came in the store. And he was just a great guy. And Spike Lee is a big collector of Romare Baird. And he's very, he and Jacob Lawrence are probably the two most prominent yes. African American artists. But in the I 20th. think, in just in terms of artists, whether you're African or not, I think Romare is really one of the greatest artists. Of the of the twentieth century, he, um, he actually gave you an interesting gift. The the uh, scenes he did for the movie Gloria, the the boards. Well, what I this was a big mistake because I had a show of all of those little pastels, all beautiful scenes of of New York, and then we were selling them. And I sh really, in retrospect, should have bought every single one because at that time they were not expensive. And it would have been just a great thing to have. You kept some of them, though. I you? bought one, and one. I still have it, and I love it. Yes, he was a, a fascinating person. What was your, um, at, at one point with Andy Warhol, I remember um, we had lunch with him in the 70s in, in Switzerland, and uh, you knew his manager, was that? Yes, Fred Hughes. 
my friend Jocelyn knew Fred Hughes. Okay. So um, we invited them for lunch, but um, (laughs) Andy didn't show up. And Fred said, oh, he's in a room. He's in our room looking at a dog. So, <laughs> Looking at a dog? Yes. Did he have a dog that he brought to Switzerland? Or? Sweetie. Okay. Uh, this is all I okay. know. Is <laughs> Did he eventually that, come down to lunch? No. No. We saw him before we chatted with him. This was in um, Samaritz. Uh, um, but I, but Fred Hughes was very lively to talk to. But in, in, in speaking with Andy Warhol, you said he was he was difficult to communicate with. He would say G right in the book. Oh and, yeah, and, that's oh, you're right, and, darling. You remember it so much better than I do. You're right. Yes, he he just said G. Wow, you know, but he wasn't really one to make interesting conversation. So there was really in speaking with him, there was no understanding. He was one of the 20th century's one of the world's most famous artists ever. You didn't get that. There was no gravitas or any kind of. Thing. Well, just, I'm sure he said smart things to some people, but I all I remember to me is him saying "gee whiz" and and that type of thing. Did he come in the store too on his own to to occasionally? Well, he buy? would come in to sign books, and then he would invite us all down there to his studio, to the factory. Yeah, the one on Union Square. Yeah. How many times did you go there? I probably went there a couple of times, and I wish I had an exciting story to tell you. But I don't. You used to go to Studio Fifty Four as well when that was in. Oh, I loved Studio Fifty Four. Did you see interesting people there? And oh, yes. You'd see everybody there. You know, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. You know, Jackie Onassis, Lee Radzi, Will. I mean, everybody went there. The Kennedys. It was, it was the place to go. Did you, did you go there fairly often, Studio 54? Or? Well, it was only open for such a short time. Right, then you had the tax issue and they closed. And Yeah, but I went there a few times. And the last time I went there, I was nine months pregnant with Andrew. And I was very eager for the baby to be born. And I was feeling really bored with just sitting around. And so Alex said, let's go to Studio 54. So we went there. And I must have been the only nine-month pregnant woman. So they picked me out and (laughs) took me in. Because they liked to have a mixture of the crowd. And then um, we danced around. And then the baby came not too far after. So That was was a difficult pregnancy, I remember. Well, yeah, blood I, yeah, that's true. And that um, true. so, one of the ways also you um, you overcame any depression issues was this um, obviously a love of Buddhism and getting an understanding of Buddhism, and then later laughing yoga and the healing touch. Um, but in, in terms of Buddhism, you went to Tibet, of course, with Robert Thurman, Uma Thurman's father, yeah. and you were on the board of Tibet House with Richard Gere. How did you get involved with uh, Robert Thurman and Tibet House? And well. Um, some of my friends who were writers told me about this wonderful teacher named Gaelic Rinpoche. And he was teaching at that point at the Open Center. What so is the I, Open Center, please? The Open Center is a wonderful place on 30th Street with um, a lot of teachings that can really transform your life, teaching in Buddhism, meditation, energy work, um, sound healing, you know, so many different ways that you and it and so this um buddhism the classes i can still remember gaelic rinpoche saying to the class anger is the most negative emotion you can have and it will not only hurt you in this life but all your future lives as well anger is the most negative emotion and will only hurt you in this life and in future lives yeah kind of like your mother's expression about um laugh and the world laughs with you cry and you cry alone 
Yes. Well, she repeated to me and you obviously many times. Yes. So you, so you had, so she, that person was your teacher. Yeah, he was, he was my teacher, and we started, and I started meditating and just taking, you know, a few minutes every day to think and watch your thoughts, and not attach to them. Just let them go by. You know, you're because during the day our thoughts are going. Oh, that person didn't look at me very nicely, and you can grab at that. Or you could just so much better just just let it go or think maybe that person is going through something. Because I have this experience. I volunteer at the Atlantic Hill Hospital. And I'll come into people's areas. They're just, they don't have rooms in the emergency room. And they'll look kind of unfriendly. But then I start talking to them and saying, would you like a warm blanket? Or would you like a magazine? And then we start talking. And they're very, very friendly. It just... You know, first impressions are not always correct at all. Was it, is this late '80s where you met this teacher? Yeah, it it was. It was it was about um, thirty years ago. And then you met Bob Thurman through him. Uh, yes, and then I met Bob Thurman, and and my friend Elsie Walker was very involved in the board. And I told her I loved Tibet. I'd read Seven Years in Tibet. I thought it was one of the best books I ever read. And I was dying to go to Tibet. That's Heinrich Carrera's Yes, book. Heinrich Carrera. Brad Pitt was in the movie. It was an excellent film. Yeah, too. and it was an amazing story about coming into this little forgotten kingdom. Where, During World War II. Yeah, where, that had no running water, no electricity. And the life was lived very much the way it had been. Not everything was perfect. But it, it was very fast. The Dalai Lama has admitted that, that there was issues, I believe. You yes, mentioned to me. and to, you know, there's such a divide between the rich people and the poor people. And I think there were seven levels of nobility, and they were careful as to which Dalai Lama got the nobility so that one clan couldn't dominate the others. Well, and now they're still having a big fight about who was the Karmapa. I guess one Karmapa escaped. There was another one already there, and there's this big, very rich temple. So... It's it's very the whole thing is very interesting. So you went to, obviously went to Tibet ninety one. You found it. Yeah, well, I went right on the board um, at, up to Bed House in the first meeting. Bob said he was going to Tibet the next week, and I said, "Oh, can I go with you?" And he said, "Well, if you can get your papers organized." So then I get home, and I say to Alex, "Darling, would you mind if I went to Tibet?" And he said, "No." So because he knew I'd always wanted to go. So I called Vicki Kellner, one of my dear friends, and we both got our papers, and we went off for two weeks in Tibet. Kind of like how you went to Afghanistan with your father yeah. in the 70s. I mean, another really fascinating trip. Yes. Yeah, you I'm stood in front really, of those giant Buddhas, which the Taliban Yes, it was so sad that they were destroyed. Yeah, I'm really lucky. I think um, my father really gave me a taste for travel and adventure. And he was such a good traveler, because he didn't just stay in the most expensive places. You know, he would get up early in the morning in Afghanistan to go see the camel market. Didn't so he? Didn't he bargain for hours with oh, the merchant? Oh, he bargained. Yes, over a pair of these revolting socks. There were about six pairs of socks, and he. Sp I'm probably spent an hour haggling, and finally he got six pairs of socks for I don't very little money. But I can't imagine he ever wore them because they were so uncomfortable and scratchy. But it would very. That was part of his frugality. So, so Buddhism was obviously very helpful to you in, in your life and another uh, area was um the laughing yoga how did you come into that well, the la well then um the laughing well first i think i did the sham shamanism and i became a uh 
a shaman through Alberto's school. And it was it was similar to Buddhism in that it was a different way of accessing ancient wisdom, which we've forgotten about a lot in our modern world. And um, the laughing yoga I learned about, because a friend of mine who had cancer asked if I would go with her to a laughing yoga program, because her doctor had prescribed it. So I went, I loved it. I've always loved to laugh, and here was a way I could just do it all the time. So I, I took a three-day course and became a laughter leader. And the theory is that laughing is so good for you, and it helps release all sorts of endorphins, gives you more self-confidence. And so you have these little exercises you do that are not really funny, but they're just an excuse to laugh and play around. One of the things your training was very helpful is when your mother was dying, when you were you were with her the entire time as she died. That was part of your training as well, right? To help people at the end of life. Yes. And overcome yes. terrible fear. And, and you did very well with, with that. I mean, you were with her well, constantly. She, yeah, yeah. I, well, it was very healing for our relationship as well. Why but, was that? Because you because, were Because... Um, she thanked me so much. She told me she loved me so much. She was very grateful. Your mother, while, while a glamorous person, was not the most attentive mother in the world when you were well, growing up. You know, she she was in some ways and, and not in others. I just think her life was so difficult because she had so many children. And Skipper was very demanding. Everything had to be perfect in the house. So, you know, she did what she could. She did the best that she could. So you overall think she did the best that she could, and, and you had a she was a pretty good mother in your. I think that she did probably did the best that she could. Um, well, then, after the um, so the laughing yoga and the open center and the Buddhism have those all given you as calmness then you didn't have when you were you were younger. Well, because I think it's such a mixed bag of things that I do. I always joke that Alex wakes up calm, happy. Everybody loves him. He loves everybody. He's and always calm, yes. Yes, and it takes me an hour and a half <laughs> of work to reach that state. Cause Is it I, just anxiety that you wake up with and then the, the, these things know, kick in? Um, it, it may be a little anxiety, and it's not always bad. I mean, sometimes I wake up cheerful, but I know I have to do certain things in, as my medicine to keep myself feeling good. So I get up in the morning. And I light the candles in my Buddhist altar, and I say my Buddhist prayers. And then I have shaman prayers that I say. And then I meditate for 20 minutes. And then, um, you know, I will read inspirational books and write in my journal or review how to do the tarot cards or, you know, um, different, different practices that I've learned. And then after that, you know, I usually feel pretty good. And if I don't, I go, ho, ho, ha, 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 do well, laughing yoga. And la- Alex and I laugh together. You've been married, obviously, for almost 40 years. What's, yes. what's the secret of a, of a great marriage, do you think? Well, all the qualities that Alex has, you know, kind, compassionate, fun. You know, we, we love doing the same things. It's really like having your best friend. Do you want to mention your website, too, while we're here? Oh, well, I do have, thank you, Ralph. I do have a website, uh, JeanetteWatson.com, which talks all about my my book, It's My Party. And it has all my interviews on it and reviews of the book. And so I hope 
you'll be interested. You just got a great review from Publishers Weekly. Yes, I was thrilled to get a great review of Publishers Weekly. And then I just got a copy of an interview that I did with Marion Williamson and Jeff Steinberg. And it's all, it's all about the, my book and the healing and everything. And so. I saw on Amazon, people are buying your book with uh, Bunny Mellon's book. Yes, I saw that too. That was funny. And also the National Book Award letter, um, you were in that as well. With a oh, that review. was years ago when I was at Books and Company. No, but there was a recent, though, now, there's something that came out of review. You gave an interview for someone you knew from Maine. It was in. Oh, oh, yeah, that was something else. Um, but I did. I, I talked about my, my favorite, how I read now, how I read differently. I just want to, um, in the remaining time that we have, I want to just go back and just cover some other areas. Um, one of the things that your mother took you to the White House and you met Jack Kennedy shortly before he died. This is obviously, when you saw him, did, how, did you, how did his health look to you? How did he appear? Was he vibrant? He looked very bright, vibrant, handsome, charismatic, you know, tried to engage us all in conversation. And then, um, you know, we were encouraged to go out and, and play with Carolyn, who was near the fence where hundreds of people were watching her. And he, when I think with of her it pony now, macaroni, you were saying. Yeah, right. she had a pony. And so the people were saying to me, get out of the picture. Get out of the picture. We want Caroline. It's and, a little insulting. And what's interesting, too, is um, Kennedy gets to where he's going to walk outside the White House, and he says, I can't go any further, right? Yes. Which is so ironic, given that a few months later he was killed in that open car in Dallas. I know. Which was I the know. subject of our first show with Ferris Rookstool, who was in the FBI on that. And yeah, um, it's so shocking. Did your grandmother, do you think that um, with your mother, that the love of her life, did you, do you have any idea who it was, if not Skipper? Was it, do you think it was, if, if it was Jack Kennedy or Hughes or you know, your father? I don't know, but I think there was a deep bond between my parents, even though they, they sometimes argued I think I think they were very attached to each other in some way. What do you think they had most in common? I mean, Skipper well, obviously. They both loved their families. They, my mother was a very good sport about the sailing, the skiing. Did she enjoy sailing? Yes, she used to spend a lot of time out in this boat. Did she go him. on the Greenland trip? She went on some of the very rough okay. trips. I mean, I was hope, always hoping he would take the boat to the south of France, but he went to all these cold places. Um, when I was in uh, um, Chile, I was on Chiloé Island. I was like barren, difficult. I said, I just know Skipper has been here. And, of course, he had been to <laughs> Chiloé Island. Oh, really? Yeah. Though that's, that's funny. This is back in the late 80s. But that's just the type of place he liked. Yeah. He liked rough, and he liked to prove himself and liked to go to places that, well, Easter Island. Yeah. Fascinating trip. Um, I think your sister Helen was on that. Yes, and he'd been reading about that for so many years, and he was fascinated. He went to Pitcairn Island. Yeah. Famous mutiny on the bounty. Um yeah, he just. And he also Skipper was always asking you, wasn't he, for the hundred best books? He was yes, always trying right. to to educate himself, right? Yeah, because he really right. hadn't tried very much at Brown. He had been a terrible student. He had been kicked out of a number of schools. But sort of like his father, he was trying to self-educate and better. And during, would you say that was when the closest you were to him when he was asking you about literature and you were you talking know, about it? I th when I remember my happiest time with Skipper was when we were sailing back from Bermuda after the Bermuda race in about 1964, and we got caught in a terrible hurricane. What you talked about earlier. Yes. But then I remember um, being on watch with him from 6 in the morning till noon, 
and just was very peaceful. You know, every morning would have these long periods and sailing, and he would, um, interesting, fun. He was really at his best on the trips we took. Is that when he was happiest on the boat, do you think? I think he was very happy on the boat. I think he loved traveling. And it really brought out his best side. He would never have seen a psychiatrist or gotten medic. You talked no. about in the book how it was sort of medication, I think, could have helped him probably. But I think that it would have. This was a pre-era where you don't get medicated. And you don't the, go to a psychiatrist. The John Wayne type, right? The yes. But when I was talking to Marianne Williamson um, the other day, she was saying that everyone is too much the other way now. Everyone's over-medicated. So many children are medicated people dramatize themselves so much and they think it's a trauma if something relatively small happened to them. And it's not like, you know, refugees from Africa or the Palestinians are real terrible tragedies. And I just want, now, um, the bookstore closes in 1997, correct? That's right. And um, all of your papers are at the New York Public Library, correct, on 42nd Street? In the, in the manuscripts. Um, section. Which is in the basement area, right? Yes. And um, you're, you're near George Washington, correct? Yes, yes. I'm very thrilled about that. And so people can go and they can listen to the sort of time warp of New York in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. Are all the readings, most of the readings? Most of the readings are there. Yeah. So, so. You, had the, you had the foresight to record them. Yes. Yeah, I'm so glad I did. And I have lots of photographs and um, amazing scrapbooks. I recently revisited the scrapbooks with two friends oh, who had it worked for me at Books and Company, actually three people. So we all met at the library, and it was just wonderful, a trip down memory lane. We looked at scrapbooks I hadn't looked at in years, you know, 10 years. And you have letters from Jackie Kennedy, I believe, to you? Yes, letters from Jackie, Inv- party invitations, invitations for the readings, windows we did at the bookstore. You know, we had some great adventures. One of the things Jackie Kennedy wanted you to do was hire someone who was working for her, right? Yes, and I thought that was very nice that she was so caring about her staff. And you later got to know um, Maurice Templesman, her longtime boyfriend, who basically he had taken the money that Onassis had given her when in, when Onassis when she negotiated with um, Onassis's daughter, and he had done a fantastic job, obviously, with the money. But he was interested in poetry. And are you still on the Academy of American Poetry? No, I'm not on that. But I think he's still involved. But he was still involved, and I uh, nicely met him through you. But yes, he's a wonderful man. And, he, and, and Maurice is still still alive, I believe. Yes. Um, Jackie Kennedy, did she come to the store a lot? Did you get to know her? She did come to the store, and she was at that point building a house on Martha's Vineyard. So she spent a lot of time in our architecture section pulling out books, looking at different types of houses. That's so interesting. It's sort of like the way she um, redecorated the White House yes. in the early 60s and all the studying that she did for that. Yes. Did you find her a, a fascinating person to talk to? Oh, I found her totally fascinating. It was, if someone came, she came in the room, you couldn't take your eyes off of her. She had, you know, a beautiful face, those big eyes. And when she focused on you, I believe also your father provided her the plane when Robert Kennedy was shot to go to the funeral. Yeah, I'm not sure who took the plane, but I think it was Jack and maybe Ethel. No, for Jackie, when Robert Kennedy was later killed, I think Skipper flew her to the the funeral. and some of the rest of the family. And the rest of the family. I guess she was aware of that connection, but she never talked about Jack Kennedy with you, did she? Not with me, Or your father at all? Oh, no. And your father used to come into the store. One time he brought President Carter, I believe. Yes, that was funny. You saw a big funny. limousine pull up. Because we wanted to remove anything that might look like it was lustful or not appropriate. So we were running around the store removing any books that seemed at all 
erotic, so we didn't want to upset him. Because Skipper liked a very clean image, which basically... Well, no, it wasn't Skipper. It was was Carter. Carter, Jimmy Carter. He'd given a Playboy interview where he had lust in his heart, if you remember that. But you still didn't want to offend him, or... No, no. So we we cleaned it up. Did he come to the store just that once? Just that one time. Did any other um, people, politicians, come in that you remember? Or people... Um, Moynihan, for example, or um, Michael Jackson came in, really? <laughs> offering him up instead of. Uh, I'm trying to think of a politician. Just, uh, how often did he, did he come in? He came in one time. First, um, all these big guys came into the store with the wires attached, and then, you know, he bought a lot of books and he left. It was perfectly nice and a sweet. Perfectly guy. nice, buying a lot of children's books. <laughs> and uh, I believe Robin Williams came in too and offered you chocolate, didn't he? He was also very nice. Well, Bill Murray offered Bill me Murray the offered you chocolate, sorry. Um, but um, Robin Williams did the Barbara Streisand imitation for me. He did? Yes. Was on, on the first floor? I just seen, yeah, at the cash register. I couldn't resist saying to him, I just saw you in Mrs. Doubtfire. I loved it. And then he then he put his hand on his hip and started being Mrs. Doubtfire. He was just great. Oh no, Barbara Streisand. He was being. Barbara Streisand. He was just a perfectly sweet man. Oh, wonderful. And Dustin Hoffman. Dustin you? Hoffman used to come in. He recited the snake at the cash at the cash register, the D. H. Lawrence poem. He recited that to you at the cash register. Yeah. Wow. So I he was. Know. So did he? He get to know you fairly well just by coming in. Do you know? You know, he came in more in the beginning, and and. Um, then he, he did, didn't come in. Wow, I mean, those are such. Well, we only have two minutes left, but um, these are such interesting stories, and well, of course, thank you. they're in the great book. Um, it's my party. Um, you know, having run um, the bookstore and obviously the work that you've done with yourself, you're obviously in a great place in your life now to enjoy the rest of. And you like being older. You you were saying to me earlier. Yeah, I do. I'm happier in my 70s than I've ever been. Which older people will enjoy hearing. You feel you should learn things and figure things out, I guess, right? Well, I, I don't get quite as upset about things as I used to. And I try to enjoy the moment as much as I can. Live in the moment and not be too reflective of the past? Is that what it is? Well, that sounds very superficial. I think you be aware of the past and try to learn from it, but also as you go through the funeral, don't let the past destroy what you have in the present. Don't let the past destroy what you have in the present. Okay, well, that's a good um, philosophy to live by. Thank and, you, darling. Uh, and I'm glad it's every well. Well, we just have one minute left, so I'll just thank you so much for coming in, Mom. And the book um, is, of course, It's My Party, and your website is JeanetteWatson.com. And I hope everyone checks out your website and uh, purchases the book. It's obviously available on Amazon and a number of, of stores. And um, thank you so much for coming, Mom. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And you're listening to City World Radio.